Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. Today, we are going to be talking about the Great Fire of 1914. In Salem. Fire! Uh, so I, I would say it's a, one of the more important historical narratives of the city. 100%. I'd but, say it's a cornerstone of yeah, Salem history. Yeah. But it gets lost uh, in all the witch trial stuff. And coupled with all the seafaring merchant history, it's like it falls down the list of things that people are aware of. You may have heard it mentioned on a tour, but... Usually that's as far as it goes. There's yeah. there's not a lot of in-depth discussion. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't really come up in casual conversation very often. And yet we talk about the witch trials pretty much on a regular basis. Yeah. So, But nonetheless, a significant moment in Salem's history. The blaze destroyed nearly a third of the city and left roughly eighteen to 20,000 people homeless. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some of the causes leading up to the fire, how it began and made its way through the city, and what remnants of this horrible catastrophe still linger around Salem today. But first, we're going to do a quick tour corner. We need a sound for this. I'll find a sound. Yeah. What do you want? I don't know. Like, a, I don't know. I have no idea. Just as you said, I, I heard a sound. All right, well, when you figure out what sound, <laughs> you let me know. I'll, I'll come back to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll come up with a good sound for Tor Corner. Da-da-da. So I had a kid just a couple days ago, probably like maybe four or five. Uh-huh. He asked me what my favorite cereal was. Okay. <laughs> so what, what, what's your favorite cereal? So it was very kind of creepy because I had unbeknownst to this child eaten cereal right, you know? right before I left for the tour because I just had to get something in my stomach and I had been busy all day and I just needed something quick. Peanut butter Captain Crunch. Oh, but like okay. my that's that that's a that's a treat. It's my a treat st- cereal. Okay. My standard is frosted mini wheats. Oh, those are good. Those are good. Keep you powered for a while. Yeah. yeah. So I have like a huge sweet tooth, right? Like I will just destroy bags of candy, which is radically unhealthy, but that's okay. Cereal though, I, I tend to eat uh, mostly like uh, Honey Nut Cheerios or regular Cheerios. Oh, Cheerios are good. Yeah. I like Chex, but that's almost, I think, exclusively because my aunt used to have them and like when we went to her house, then like that was the, that, so that was like a special. That's what like you, you it, got to eat. Yeah. It wasn't like a treat by any standard. We just didn't have them in our house. But my favorite cereal uh, is Weetabix, which you've probably never. Oh, is this some English thing? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I, I have some in, in, the, <laughs> in, in my cabinet. Uh, they're little bricks, maybe about this big, uh, solid of just compressed wheat stuff and then like you add milk, you add milk. and it yeah, just yeah, yeah. yeah. It breaks just, up eventually it just, it just like absorbs the milk and you got to eat it there's like a real key point to eating uh weetabix where it's like full of milk and just soft enough uh and then it gets too soft and then it's like this big bowl of mush gross um but yeah. i i've been eating weetabix how old nearly I don't, probably don't want to say how old I am. Um, <laughs> for almost my entire life, most other people think it's pretty disgusting. Yeah, I don't, no offense, but I'm not, I like my frosted mini wheats, yeah. but I don't know if I'm going to just go after one big hunk of one. Yeah, you could, you, I usually get two or three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll show you. When please do. Please do. I'm <laughs> curious. I'm curious. You're going to be like, what on earth? So the serial question came after he asked me what my favorite Harry Potter characters were Ooh. and also after what my favorite Hocus Pocus characters were. So, so we were just having this ongoing conversation about favorites throughout the tour. It was pretty fun. So who's who's your I said Luna Lovegood. Okay, good choice. I was just kind of put on the spot. Yeah, yeah. And then for Hocus Pocus, I think I'd have to go with Sarah. Okay. But that's just an easy answer. That's fair. How about you? Uh, Sarah as well. I, I think uh, I, I like the the vibe. Okay. Like the little. A little spacey. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then. Within the scope of of Harry Potter, probably Tom Riddle. Of course. No, 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 no. I I did not say the Dark Lord. No, I know. I said Tom Riddle. I know. You're going like you're going for the the original first version. No, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. Um, I tend to like the bad guys more than the good guys. I think. Bad guys almost always have a deeper backstory. There is a reason, a motive behind sort of who they are, right? They have fallen. They have, they have failed. They are broken. They, they are, they're not just good for the sake of being good. They're bad because there's some sort of a, an issue, uh, which I can appreciate with Tom. Um, and maybe I'm just totally off base here, but I feel bad for the guy whose mother was a nut job and drugs his father into conceiving him and conceived under a love spell. The curse of that is he will never know love. I did not know this. Is this in the books? Yeah. It must be. Yeah. 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 So I never so, read the books. That's, that's intense. That's so, like some deep. And, and I don't know if she intended to like maybe you just write something down you don't realize the full ramifications of an infant never knowing the love of a parent or a toddler never you know you sit there and you want to hug and you just scream and like internally this child never recognizes that feeling of, of compassion of love from 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 a child from a mother from friends and he grew up in this troubled existence and you're like yeah because he doesn't know what it's like to have a friend Mm-hmm. To have someone to give a shit about. Well, he's not him. physically capable. Of yeah, so it. that's that's the curse uh, of this character, and it destroys him so much that the only thing he turns to is uh, power and immortality. And I feel that that speaks to like a failing of so many people, and like how important just loving other people is. So. Okay. <laughs> that that is why he is my favorite character. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> You're like, I I didn't realize there was a can of worms there. Well, like, I mean, I think you can make a can of worms into whatever you want to make it into. And I'm not saying that you're wrong or anything, but I wonder if, you know, J.K. Rowling just kind of had to add in this nice, sad yeah. backstory to how do you explain someone that is so evil and so terrible? You have to give, you right. have to give a reason. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that she knew the weight of the curse that she had put upon him. I, I don't, I'm not convinced she had genuinely thought that through when she wrote those words down. I, I don't want to give her that credit. 
deep. That's a lot. That's more than I signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what that little boy would have said if I said Tom Riddle <laughs> or Voldemort. Right. Right. <laughs> so I also had another interaction on tour that pertains to today's topic, but I think I'm going to save it for later on towards the end. But this is Tour Corner. I know. Sarah, we, But it's directly related to the fire. But we don't have a and sound the people, yet, but, but we had a notional sound. We had a discussion about a sound inter- introducing You'll the just have to wait. You'll just have to wait. <sighs> She's doing this to you. It's not me. It's not my decision. <laughs> I've had to like pick and choose what I want to tell Jeffrey casually because some of it I want to hold on to and get his genuine reaction on the podcast. Ruining our friendship. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) We don't even hang out for fun anymore. We're always just working. I know. We need to go get like social drinks and like not talk about this. We love you, but we need, we we have friend time. (laughs) Yeah. Whoever said running a podcast would be easy. Mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah, we are no longer just drinking outside all souls talking about this shit. We're sitting in my living room with recording and notes and paper and laptops. It's not nearly as fun. That's a lie. This is a lot of fun. This is fun. Mm. We don't drink as much anymore. That's probably a good thing. (laughs) We used to drink a lot in the beginning. To loosen up the nerves. Yeah, yeah. We're much more comfortable with this now. At first, we'd be like, okay, let's crack some. I have bottles of wine that we... But we are far beyond that. Yeah, yeah. So let's dig into today's topic. Okay. Do you want to get wine, though? (laughs) We can pause. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. (laughs) You brought it up. We're talking about a sad story today. We should drink. One one quick thing, but before we begin, uh, tour stuff. I I had some people from, from Michigan on my tour. Oh, that's fun. And, and I was like, oh, where? And I was like, you know what? I'm like, I'm sorry, but it doesn't really matter. And I wasn't like trying to be what? rude, but they could have, t- I didn't, I wouldn't have known. Right. Oh, okay. yeah, so yeah. I was like, and I was like, but uh, co-host a podcast, my co-host, you is from Michigan. And she goes, oh, here. She's like, she holds up her hand and she goes from here. And looks like about Flint or so. I, I'm not sure. But I guess that's clearly a thing you do. Yes, we hold up our palms and we show where we live <laughs> because the hand makes a Michigan. It's a mitten. Okay. And then you can also take your other one and make the Upper Peninsula as well. What's what's the Upper Peninsula? Michigan make- has two pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, so so that's that's where they were from. Very cool. I love getting <laughs> Michiganders. Yeah. I also I love getting anyone from the Midwest. I had a couple people people from Iowa the other day, and. Uh, it's just, it's a little taste of home. I feel that. I, I probably, this, I do the same thing when I have English people on my tour. Mm-hmm. All right. Are we ready for fire? We got wine. The Great Salem Fire of 1914 is, as we said, one of Salem's cornerstone events. They call it uh, typically. The uh, Great Conflagration. Conflagration. Am I, am I saying that right? I, I believe so. I, I did the Google and the, the pronunciation and I was like, oh, Okay. That's easier to say than I thought it was, but I'm still probably going to screw it up. Conflagration. Conflagration. I think it's basically just a very large, yeah, large fire. Very commonly used term during this time because yeah. this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a new thing. Industrial fires had burned multiple cities at this yeah. point. So when we talk about like this great fire, we, we tend to think of it or any other great industrial fires uh, of this country 
as like a historic thing. And, and it is obviously it happened back whenever, but fires are still happening today. We can turn on the news most times of the year and, you know, the significant brush fires and issues in the West Coast uh, just a few years ago or every year you, you see uh, Napa and, and these sorts of places uh, mm-hmm. suffering droughts and wildfires. Um, my brother uh, and now my sister-in-law had to be evacuated uh, just after the quarantine time. Gosh, uh, we even had the smoke making its way all the way over to the East Coast. Right. Just- so. I can't even imagine what it was like living in California yeah, during like, that time. Like, oh, guys, <laughs> the sky is hazy because there's a fire 3,000 miles away. That That's on whole towns, gone. People lost everything. And we're going to talk about the fire today that, that, that's very similar to that. And the scale, obviously smaller, but but the loss is is just as great. And we look at these things and... We, we know uh, how important firefighters are to our community. My brother's a firefighter. He's probably listening. So shout out to you, Tim. Thank you to you and, and all those people. Um, Yay, Tim. And uh, even here in Salem, we still have uh, these issues. Just a couple weeks ago, I'd say about a month ago at this mm-hmm. point, we had a fire breakout over on Hancock Street, which is located just off of Lafayette, and which we will learn in this episode was completely devastated by the 1914 fire. But this fire, it took one house completely. They had to, had to demolish it the next day. It spread to two other homes, damaged them significantly, and then a third as well. So the conditions, which we'll find out, were very similar. It was a dry, hot, windy day. And even with today's advancements in firefighting equipment, Multiple cities had to be called to help, and it took several hours to put the flames out. Yeah. And we still lost buildings. So just and imagine what it was no like one, back no then. No one was hurt. No one was hurt. So that's a small silver lining. Wherever you are, uh, whether you're, you're on the West Coast and, and have uh, significant brush fires, or if you're just here and you're like, oh, well, I live in Massachusetts and whatever, like, hey, be careful. Blow out your candles. Put out your cigarette butts. So this episode is dropping on June 21st, and we chose that date specifically because the fire started on June 25th, 108 years ago. It started at a leather factory located right on Boston Street in Salem's Manufacturing District, and it would go on to destroy over 1,300 buildings, consume over 250 acres, three people lost their lives, and almost 20,000 were made homeless. And 10,000 people would also lose their jobs because a lot of the- So yeah, it wasn't just residential. Right. Uh, as, we, as you said, it, it starts in this- uh, um, commercial area. Commercial area. So, so many people are working down at the leather factories and the uh, mill works and whatnot. So those buildings get destroyed. And now not only are they homeless, they are jobless as well. Yeah. Can you imagine losing not only everything that you own yeah. pretty much, but then also not having a job to go back to and then start rebuilding? It's just absolutely devastating. Lives devastated. So this is the last great fire of uh, sort of the Industrial Revolution era, so 1914. Uh, But you've probably heard of some other great fires. 
Yeah, let's put this into the context of other fires that would have been happening up until this point. Uh, Portland, Maine, which if Just you around are in the corner, I was going to say if you're in the New England area, you know, it's about two hours north yeah. of Salem. I'd say similar in size, probably at that point. Yeah. A fire will break out on July 4th. Approximately 1,800 buildings were lost and about 10,000 people were made homeless. So comparatively, that's uh, more buildings, almost 500 more buildings. However, it's only about half the amount of homeless or people left homeless. So that gives you a sense of how, con- not congested, but yeah. just to the degree at which people were living in close quarters here in town. Then we move on to the Great Chicago Fire, which I'm sure everyone's Every, heard of this one. Something about a cow in a barn. There's a song. It happened in 1871, burned over the course of two days. And this one was particularly devastating in that it killed 300 people. Yeah. Uh, one of the factors in that is that happens at night or starts in the evening, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, there's no silver lining uh, to any of this really. But uh, the fact that this happens uh, just before two o'clock in the afternoon and starts an industrial era that gives a significant amount of people. They're all, they're all awake. No one's right. at, at home in bed. Uh, they're out at work and these sorts of things. So, so that, that helps. They have time to actually get out. Yeah. Yeah. The Chicago fire burns approximately 2,100 acres over 17,000 buildings. And as I said, 300 people died. And that happened 40 years prior. So uh, these are not, I mean, they're not common, but it's not like this had never happened. Right. They know about these fires. The Great Baltimore Fire, if we're getting closer to 1914, and of course, closer geographically, Mm -hmm. Baltimore, Maryland, they lose about 1,500 buildings. But no people. No recorded deaths. Um, but that's just recorded. Yeah. And then we go even closer to home and probably the most relevant to the folks of Salem at this time, the great Chelsea fire of 1908. So Chelsea is located just north of Boston. It burns across approximately 350 acres, destroys about 1,500 buildings, and there were 19 fatalities. Well, you know, I... I think I've heard of that uh, just like vaguely in passing. Now, this is kind of unrelated because we are jumping ahead to the 1970s. But I did want to mention that in 1973, Chelsea experienced another fire and it started like 200 yards away from where the original fire started. And this one, even in the 70s, burned 18 city blocks I didn't know that was like I a had thing. No idea. So that was pretty, pretty crazy to learn about. It's amazing. Or coincidence. The coincidence is amazing. Mm-hmm. Not, not the fire. So I think this is the closest we can really get to a Salem comparison, especially because it was so close to home, something that they would have had, you know, just in their general knowledge base. So, so we have a, a history of industrial fires in this country. And uh, there was some writing on the wall in Salem. They knew the dangers of of these fires. Uh, Salem had been growing uh, during the Industrial Revolution. We had, in 1914, about 10,000 people more than we'd had just 10 years before. Uh, So this is putting strains and pressure on 
the community as a whole, our water mains, our ability just to, you know, uh, um, infrastructure in the city. And we have people who are coming to the table, uh, like literally politically, like, you know, the city councilors, members of the community who are saying we are at risk of this damage. Oh, we need to fix water mains. We need to fix uh, structural integrity. And a lot of it was just ignored. Unfortunately, you're right. Several folks will raise alarm bells and even propose practical solutions, but these red flags will be dismissed. So let's let's kind of put ourselves in 1914, which city? <laughs> so at this point in history, uh, our main economic sustenance is not tourism. It was manufacturing. They're like, producing cotton goods like textiles, leather, shoes, lots of shoes. Like uh, Lowell and Lawrence and many of these other New England towns. We have these big factories, uh, mill works, and uh, that's where we're going. Yeah, they're still producing lumber here like they were 200 years prior. The population is sitting at around 48,000. Which is actually more than the population today. Uh, per the last census, we're sitting at about 44,000. So there's about four or 5,000 more people in the city then than there are today. So, you know, a lot of, if you want to talk about overcrowding and, you know, housing issues, there's going to get 5,000 more people when the Great Salem Fire happens. And of course, these households are much larger in number than mm -hmm. we see today. But that also goes to show just how much Salem how much of an economic hit this is to Salem, yeah. how much the, the population decreases after the fire. And um, it takes a long time to build back up. So the, that 48,000 was kind of relatively new. Yeah, we, Salem had just seen a major influx of European immigrants. So it's about 10,000 more than it had been 10 years ago, which is huge. Very similar to other cities during this time. Off the boat, right? That, that sort of narrative. And very much like Boston, Salem had its different neighborhoods, right? Yep. So we've got a Polish neighborhood, Italian, Irish, a lot of French Canadians yeah. here as well. That's why they listen to the podcast. The Canadians love us. Yeah. <laughs> We're number 15 on their uh, travel charts. Maybe not when they hear this, but yeah. <laughs> we were once. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, a lot of these immigrants had come seeking out a chance to build a better life for themselves. With all this industrial work. They were working in those mills, the tanneries. And unfortunately, these are the individuals that are most affected by the fire because many of them are living in the more cramped neighborhoods. We'll talk a little bit about that more as we go along. So what led up to that day? Like... A lot. And again, you know, when we talk about the trials, we tend to say like history doesn't happen in a bubble. Uh, so we have this history of these industrial fires in the city. We look at Salem as uh, in budding in industrial city with we have our mills and leather and, and tanneries. And there were people who looked at the situation and said, this could go wrong. This could be dangerous. One guy in particular, his name was Franklin H. Wentworth. In 1914, he would be working on the National Board of Fire Underwriters. But he, was a, he was a city councilor, right? 
Yes. Yeah. But in 1910. Yeah, yeah. But when this fire happens, he's basically at like the top level of fire study, safety. fire yeah. study and safety at the national level. So like, this is all to say he's a fire guy. Like so he like, knows his fire. Yeah. He knows his flames. And and, <laughs> and in 1910, he's he's telling Salem that they are at serious risk. Uh, the roof issue. So he had introduced an order that would enforce fire resistant roof coverings throughout the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it was immediately shot down. Yeah, I guess they accused him of trying. Uh, he was in the pocket of the insurance companies, right? So he's trying to force this narrative through because then all the insurance companies are going to make out and he's going to take a kickback from that. And he's like, no, guys, like seriously. This is an issue. This is an issue. He would even take his statements public and warn the city of the risk in the Salem Evening News as well. So I, I do wonder to what degree people in town worried about this. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to look back, but, you know, here's someone who's trying to push for government oversight for safety regulations so people don't get hurt. And, I, you know, you can see that sort of correlation made today. And there's people who are just, they're like, no, we don't need these regulations. Everything's going to be okay. You just have to hope the worst case scenario doesn't happen. So I want to read a line. He said, Wentworth, it was folly. To spend the money for new engines, chemicals, and additional firemen and do absolutely nothing to remove the cause of this ever-increasing tax. There you go. So they're, they're dumping all the money into, you know, more firefighters and more engines, but not infrastructure. Now I'm reading that right from The Salem Fire by Arthur B. Jones. Which is been like a fantastic resource it's literally on the cover originally published in 1914 yeah it's funny when we were prepping for the episode jeffrey pulls out this book and i look at the publishing date and it says 1914 i was like wait a minute the fire happened in 1914 this was published what how and then we opened it up yeah well i i picked it up originally i I don't know just in a local salem and i was like oh this will be a good resource if i want to learn about the fire i had no idea Read the dedication on the on the inside. The author dedicates this book to the boys with whom he has worked, shoulder to shoulder in fighting the flames, loyal friends, good fellows, and faithful public servants, to the viewing, to the visiting firemen who so promptly and willingly answered the call on that day. We shall never forget, driven. From position after position by the advancing flames, enduring all hardships gladly in an endeavor to help those who needed their aid. Arthur B. Jones was a firefighter here in Salem and was actually helping to fight the flames on that fateful day. Yeah. And of course, given that stance, he is very harsh uh, when he describes the warnings that were presented before this all takes place. So it's a phenomenal resource, as we said. Right. Uh, I, I, historically speaking, it's like as good as you get. Oh, yeah. This is what we would call a primary source document. Yeah. Uh, something that's written right around that time from someone that actually experienced the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's phenomenal. I'm sure you can pick it up anywhere downtown. I mean, not anywhere, but definitely in places. And it's red too, which is like, 
I don't know. Boom. Yeah. Right there. So they knew. Like Salem was warned by fire, quote unquote, experts about the risks that these highly flammable roofs and lack of fire resistant buildings would pose if something like Baltimore or Chelsea or Chicago started. They knew that that's all it would take. And they knew. So you can, if back then you looked and you go 100,000 people in Chicago, you know, 1,800 uh, buildings up in Portland, you know, 10,000 people homeless. Like, what if that happened here in Salem? And they were trying to help. But unfortunately, improvements to the buildings won't really start being made until a couple of years prior. And it just wasn't enough to help stop the spread. A couple other things to play into that day. The weather, I mean, I think we talked about the weather when it comes to the Salem witch trials. And mm-hmm. like, no, seriously, like it is such a big factor. You can't. I, you know, so it's kind of funny. Uh, oftentimes, like I'll see people, friends, right? Like, I'm like, oh, how are tours? How's this? You know, I'm like, weather dictates all, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, how was your tours on Saturday? Well, it was 75 and sunny, so they were real nice. And it was like, oh, well, it was 85 and humid. So and no, they wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, we like, still are super, the yeah. weather rules all. But on this day, June 25th, 1914, they had been Bit of a e- drought. experiencing a dry spell, and it was very windy that day. And, you know, t- today, and again, wanted to keep bringing history back to you, to your to your modern palate, you've probably all been somewhere at some point hiking or, or in a place and you're like the fire danger today is at a high level. We are at high risk of fire. Be careful out there. And we, we are well familiar with these sort of charts and signs that you see around. This is no different. They just unfortunately didn't have uh, a, the level of communication that, that we have today. When you see these charts, take them seriously. A hundred percent. And we'll end up talking about some of the disadvantages they had. You got to think fire departments, they were not like they are today. <laughs> right. Um, I know in the past few years, Oh, I'm going to complain real quick. No, I'm not. Okay. Hold on. No. Yeah, I am. Okay. In the past few years, uh, maybe in the past four years or so, we've, uh, within the city budget, got two, at least two big rig fire trucks, brand new. And um, have you seen them around? They look new. Yeah, They all look the same to okay. me. I'm They're sorry. Like, <laughs> like, maybe now that I've told you, you'll see them and be like, oh, those are the big ones, the new ones. They're this, they're red and black uh, and gold, and they look real sharp. Oh. Except I have one small complaint. What is that? They're not black and orange. And I know Salem doesn't have to be black and orange in Halloween colors. However, Sleepy Hollow in New York got some brand new fire trucks recently, and theirs are black and orange. I don't think I've ever seen an orange fire truck before. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> they look, bizarre. They look real cool. That is, it won't petition the city for the next one. They look real cool. And I, I didn't know this was a few years ago. Someone was like, oh, yeah. Did you know Sleepy Hollows are black and orange? And I was like... Hey, but you know, but you know, I I want black and orange. You know what our fire trucks have on them? The bears don't. A witch. Ours have a witch. (laughs) Just like our police badge. 
our fire badge also has a witch on it. So if you look on the side near the front of that fire truck, there is a little baby witch in the emblem. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so take that sleepy hollow. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure they we, don't have a headless horseman on there. Probably not. But it would be cool. You know, you know, if if they're listening, uh, there's an Instagram page, Terrytown something. I'm sorry, I'm screwing up your your handle. Uh, let us know. That would be the coolest. Right? But they're black and orange. And I was like, why couldn't we have black and orange? Nonetheless, we got two. Uh, they're about a million dollars each for, for the city. Oh, so my God. That's, um, but getting back to, to with the fire, I, I, I hope we as a city are also investing in infrastructure and not just the, the rigs to put the fires out. I mean, I would hope that Salem post-1914 made it a pri- – I mean, they did. They made yeah. it a priority to improve the city, and we'll talk about that. But, you know, people forget their history. So yeah. That's why we're here, to remind you. History. Infrastructure. <laughs> oh. Are we running for office now? No. <laughs> Jesus. God, can you imagine me as a city councilor? Yes. I think you'd actually probably be great. Oh, my great. God, please. You'd be great. <laughs> So we do have, uh, even today, those new modern rigs, which is good. But I, again, I, I hope they're putting that money towards infrastructure as well, because in uh, this report, they're literally being like, well, yeah, we're hiring new rigs and new guys, which is great. But what are you going to do to fix the roofs? And they didn't do anything. And unfortunately, that's going to be one of the biggest contributing factors alongside that. Uh, You have to remember these buildings are very close together, um, which they still are today. Mm -hmm. You walk through New England towns and you're going to see houses right on top of each other. So very difficult to prevent spread. A lot of them are, are of course, made of wood. Which also, that's, (laughs) yeah. There's also poor building codes leading up to that point no systematic inspection of buildings and a lack of modern amenities such as fire escapes and sprinklers, which would have been considered modern at that time. And my personal favorite, narrow and crooked streets, which if you've driven out here, you know that nothing's really changed. No. They do end up widening them after the fact, at least some of them. But for the most part, you still see these tight quarters, these very slim streets, buildings on top of each other. These are all going to play into why this fire does so, the way it does. Does so much damage. So do we want to roll through sort of a, a little bit of a timeline of the day? Absolutely. The fire began in the afternoon hours of June twenty fifth at the corn leather factory which was located at 57 Boston Street. So if you're a local, uh, you know that that's right about where Walgreens sits today. Mm -hmm. And if you're not local, you may have actually heard about this special Walgreens because it is where they believe that the accused witches in 1692 were wrongfully executed. So right at the hill, right at the edge of Proctor's Ledge and Gallows Hill. So... Make that correlation if you want. Uh, however, this is just at the end of the North River. It's our industrial park. Uh, the United States has a history of industrial fires. And what seems to happen is um, 
So I like to, 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 to when, I, when I get questioned about this, like, well, what happened? How'd the fire start? And like, oh, it was a fire industrial factory. Remember in high school uh, when your science teacher was like, these rags go in this bin. These rags <laughs> go in that bin. And you're all like, oh, I'm 16. Sure, fine. There's a reason for that. This is the reason for that. Unfortunately, there was a tremendous amount of flammable material here, mm-hmm. chemicals. I mean, we're starting in a a factory, a tannery. A tannery. The chemicals that are used to treat that leather, we've got alcohol, acetone, amalcyl. Yeah, I amal- Amalacite. 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 So is it A-M-A-L-A-C-I-T-A-T-E? We're not chemical experts. We are not. Now, this building also housed large quantities of celluloid, which at first I thought was like a fat, but it's actually, it's the same type of like plastic used in film, like the old film reels. And I don't know if you know this, but it's extremely flammable. Oh, oh yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard all. So. Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. yeah but yeah. also like it was a huge problem. So there's, they're missing. Uh, you, you brought up Doctor Who a, a little yeah. while ago. The first f- season or two gone, burned down in in a, so they kept all these uh, old film reels in tins, right, right, and then they just store them all. But all of a sudden, sometimes they'd have these warehouse fires, and these things would just go on like like instantly gone. We've lost like if you look at like movie history and like warehouse fires and stuff, we have lost. Almost unimaginable amounts of like original shows, episodes, silent pictures, wow. and stuff from like you know the 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 nineteen hundreds. Yeah, this stuff was like so like same same type yeah, of material. Yeah, extremely flammable. And alongside that was a bunch of sheepskins, which I mean, obviously, we all know that that's going to be very. It's going to catch fire very quickly. Oh, yeah. we all know how flammable sheepskin is. Are you making a joke? <laughs> yes. It's fur. It's hair. I know, like, I know, I know. But so what's sort of, and again, it's these little pieces of a larger puzzle, right? So we have this in uh, this, these chemicals that are stored or you're utilized inappropriately. Some of them catch fire. They happen to get into a big fire and then they happen to hit the cellular. There's a big explosion and it all just goes downhill from there. The fire then traveled up the elevator shaft to the third floor where it found yet more flammable uh, chemicals. Mm-hmm. And the first fire alarm will sound at 1.37 p.m. And it was soon followed by a second general alarm four minutes later. So back then, they didn't have 911 mm-hmm. yet. So how do we... They used something called box alarms. And honestly, it's it's very similar to what we see today in buildings you got the little fire alarm that's attached to the wall you pull the little lever and it alerts the fire department that there has been a fire at this location so it's literally a fire alarm yeah i don't want to go too far into the development but just so you have a sense of like how it worked and how they were moving throughout the city as this and how they were responding to the fire as it moved so they would have these fire alarms, these fire boxes stationed at various points throughout the city. Each one had a number 
Um, and each one was specific to that location. So what would happen is if you had a fire, someone goes and pulls that lever or activates it, however it's activated, it would then transmit a pulse back to the station. So all these boxes were connected to the main fire station through a system of low voltage wiring, which had been put in place you know, probably years before, it's either running above their heads with the rest of the telephone poles or it's running underneath the buildings. Either way, when that lever is pulled, it transmits that unique frequency back to the Salem fire station and then they are able to then respond to whatever box that was that just alerted them. So that's the system that we're working with here in 1914. So that that's really cool. Um, right? So I'm sitting here listening to you to you explain this, and I, I think we often underestimate the marvels of previous technology, right? Like, Absolutely. Like, cool, I can get on my phone, I can FaceTime someone in Europe, and like, you know, Dropbox pictures and videos, and I can stream the internet, and that's all cool, and I kind of get that. But I can also... 911, boom, done, they'll be here. Digital, cell, technology, hit the fire alarm, cool. But that level of sophistication where they had planned all these different boxes laid out across the city, all these different tones in case the issue, so you would hit the box, they would know the location, they would know the tone, and being able to respond accordingly, I think takes like way more was well, innovation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like Industry I said, and innovation. I didn't want to go too far into the development, but the, I believe the first patent is released in 1848 or 1858, somewhere around for there. These sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been developing for quite a bit of time. They've got the system down, but you're right. I mean, I think a lot of us don't understand just how much, technology they did have access to and And creative creative technology indeed now for folks looking to study how this fire moved and what happened on that day these alarm logs are incredibly useful Mm -hmm. as i mentioned we have that alarm at 137 for a fire and then we get the general alarm which from what i understood it seems more of just like a general like call the police, call everyone, all hands on deck. We get another one pulled at 152, 156, box 515 at 217. A military call goes out at 231, 515 again at 241, 53 at 306, 514 at 314, 513 at 327, and this is just going to keep going all the way until June 26th, the next morning at 1221 a.m. when the final box is pulled. So using those, I know I just spat out a bunch of numbers, but you can map the you can map out the boxes and see how this fire traveled. So they, they called for help and help came. Thank goodness. Uh, so it, we say the Great Fire of Salem, uh, but there was a significant amount of other firefighters who responded to this call um, in in true fashion, just like they do today. And I'm going to list all the cities <laughs> here in a second. 
Um, but I just want to mention Beverly real quick. So we have Salem that goes off at 137. Beverly receives a call at 150. And they are here by 205. That blew my mind. <laughs> I, I'm not sure today in my car I could get nope get there that quick. Uh, so they that's that's impressive. And, and there's a number of other cities uh, that respond just as quickly. But the cities that we send a call to, 21 in total, they all respond. And if you are from the Massachusetts area, you're going to recognize what I'm going to talk about here. If you're not from the Massachusetts area, uh, I apologize. So we have Peabody, Beverly, Marblehead, Lynn, Swampscott, Boston, Chelsea, Wakefield, Danvers, Reading, Stoneham, Newburyport, Revere, Lawrence, Malden, Gloucester, Manchester-by-the-Sea, Medford, Hingham, Somerville, and Winchester all come to Salem's Aid. 21 different communities came to Salem almost immediately as soon as they were called upon. Incredible. After the fire starts, it quickly engulfs the factories that surrounded corn leather. It then moves up Boston Street. And I got to say, we're pretty lucky here because if the winds were going north, there's a good chance that Salem would have lost Federal Street, Chestnut Street, Essex Street. I mean, they almost did. So if you're if you're standing sort of in the Walgreens parking lot and you're looking straight down Bridge Street and then you turn yourself like a quarter turn to the right, that's where the fire goes. Just in that direction. If if it had been just just a little bit to the left as you're looking down towards the city, that would have taken out some of the most historic buildings in the city and and it would have ended in down it would have ended downtown many of the historic buildings that you know and love and come to Salem to visit today the ropes mansion witch the house the witch house would have been engulfed in yeah. flames but luckily i mean not luckily whatever i don't know how to phrase the word that it took okay. some buildings and not other buildings but it takes out just to the right of that. Yes, it goes southeast. Another thing that helped out that circumstance too, firemen acted quickly and started dynamiting several homes that were right on the western edge of Federal Street and Essex Street. So seven homes are dynamited right in that area uh, to kind you, of- Can you imagine like that's, you're like, no, your house wasn't burned. We had to destroy it to save all the other houses. But to prevent further spread, it's just, it's crazy. So this then loops down towards the greater Lafayette area. So to give you guys some perspective. So if you're standing at the intersection of Derby and Washington with the Derby restaurant and the merchant and front street and downtown staged on your left, imagine literally everything on your right on fire. Everything. I, I mean, from the post office to the streets to to where the UPS uh, store is uh, today, that where Howling Wolf is, all of that is on fire. And if you were to continue to walk down the street all the way down to the National Park to where the wharves are today, everything on your right would have been on fire. It absolutely destroys Lafayette Street. I think that takes the brunt of it, mm-hmm. and specifically what we call the point. Mm-hmm. Back then it was called La Pointe. 
It was the main settlement area for Franco-Americans here in town. I did want to mention a couple of the streets that were heavily affected, since I know that we do have a lot of local listeners, and I know that they'll recognize some of these streets. We know people that live on these streets today, and if you come to Salem, just keep these in mind as you're walking around. Fowler Street, North Pine, part of Highland Avenue, Leach Street, Phelps, Hathorne, Winthrop, Orange Square, Endicott, Margin, Downing, Prescott, Gardner, Cabot, Hancock, Roslyn, Canal, and Hazel Street. So just for a little bit of clarification purposes, when she's talking about these streets, every house on the street burned to the ground. Gone. No walls. Just gone. Um, so many of you have probably walked up Lafayette sort of from, if you, if you start on, on, on central street and you walk through lights, you have the engine house, pizza, howling wolf on your right. And you continue to walk all the way up Lafayette to Willow Ave. Maybe you want to go see Max Dennison's house. Uh, many of you have probably walked or, uh, driven that you may have noticed. And if you haven't noticed before, take a look next time, uh, just past Christina's pizza on the left, uh, you'll start to see some older looking houses. That's because this is where they stopped the fire. We've got that distinct change in the modern buildings that came. It's right on leech after, much. after the flames to what actually survived. So you have all those, they look sort of oldish. I mean, brick buildings, apartment buildings, fine. But once you start to see those old building houses, you know, you've gotten to a place that the Salem fire didn't get to. Might I also just interject, we are sitting in and recording in one of those very buildings that escaped the flames. We're about a Um, block away. We're a block away, and we'll share a a map of the fire's destruction um, in our show notes and on all the social medias, but both Jeffrey and I were looking at this map and like trying to find our houses where we were at. And both of us are just shy of that fire line. Yeah, so you're just safe in the McIntyre mm-hmm. and I'm just safe in the Lafayette. It's just such an incredible feeling to be reading about this significant moment in Salem's history and I know we have this privilege, and I'm sorry for the folks that wish they had this, Um, but just to be able to stand in a space where we could have seen the fire, like we could have been in our, if we were to go back 108 years ago and we're in this very spot, we could see the flames blazing. It's just, it's eerie, unsettling. Right? It's one of those things that just, you need to, I don't know, uh, I know that I don't fully comprehend what that, right? Like I look at that narrative, I'm like, I'm looking at something that I know I can't understand. No, we could never understand what living through an industrial fire was like. Absolutely not. So as it's making its way up Lafayette Street, it ends up engulfing the orphan asylum here in Salem. Uh, Just an interesting moment to note that they were able to save all of those children. So I think it was 25 nuns, right? Mm-hmm. Save 100 children. And aged women. Yeah. They got yeah, them out right before the fire took Which hold. Which is like one of these things that you, I don't even know, like, I, it doesn't even seem real when you're like a bunch of nuns saved 100 children and aged women from a blaze. You're like, that 
that's just made up, right? Like when, when I say that, like who, who nuns saving orphan children from a fire? Like that's, that's like in a story I read somewhere, but that's literally exactly what happened. What happened? So as we said, it makes its way to New Derby Street and onto the wharves, in fact, where it finds thousands of tons of coal. And those coal mounds would still be burning three weeks later. <laughs> Barbecue? The, now that was in poor taste. Okay. <laughs> it's coal. It's like what you put on a barbecue. Yes, it's yes, not, yes. It's, I'm not, yeah. Sorry, um, I just had to... Th- <laughs> You've said it to me so many times today. <laughs> but this is really where firefighters are able to get control of it. It's not going to take the customs house. It's not going to take the Derby house. The Derby house, right? Uh-huh. The first brick house in, in the city. And actually, it's not going to take Derby Wharf either. No, they, they have a set of sprinklers. Some type of mechanism that they were able to... yeah. We are into the late hours of that day, the 25th. It is dark out. The fire has spread pretty much to a third of the city at this point. At Lane's Wharf, next to Derby Wharf, there's a nice big three-story brick building right there. So it kind of gives them a little bit of an advantage. Mm-hmm. And then same thing on Central Street. Yeah. So right at Central and Lafayette. So uh, many of you... If you come recently, you've probably seen the new big smoke shop uh, right there. Uh, And for those of you who remember, that's the Salem Laundry. Uh, So if you were to walk past their doors just on the ground, you could see still uh, in the ground is that brass logo that says the Salem Laundry. And according to Arthur B. Jones, uh, he pretty much well describes how the firefighters sort of force that to be their stand. They, they're not letting the fire get past them. There are trucks, there are men, they're stopping the blaze uh, from traveling any farther up Central Street. Uh, they're saving Front Street, they're saving the Customs House, they're saving downtown. They're saving Essex Street. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I think it was a combination of just the efforts concentrated in those places. Um, they were able to really stop the fire at a line mm-hmm. and then also the contributing factor of modern buildings, these buildings that they were able to use to kind of withstand the flames, concrete brick, much less flammable than any of the wooden houses or those highly flammable roofs we just talked about. And they'll finally get it under control around 3 a.m. on the 26th. That's 12 hours, 13 hours. 13 hours. That is not a long time. Uh, This is, I mean, panic is not the right term because that would sort of give the idea of... Chaos? Chaos. Uh, But they worked incredibly well together. Uh, There was coordinated efforts of of fighting these fires, the demoing of the buildings, uh, the the, the cooperation between the cities, uh, and and it was through their measures that uh, the Salem fire only took one third of the city. I was going to say, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. It could have been a lot, lot worse. But it was still pretty bad for a lot of people. Now, Salem today has those big million dollar engines like you described earlier in the episode. But back then, not so much. They're working with a mixture of motorized engines and horse-drawn carriages and no pocket radios. No. I think that's yeah, like- you just had to get a map and coordinate and they had runners between 
sites. And I mean, it was just, you know, a, a, a credit to their skill uh, of the day for sure. Very little protective equipment. Yeah. Today, you know, you think these firefighters and they have these jackets and, and the trousers and the helmets and the air tanks and the masks. Oh my gosh, the, the air tanks. I didn't even think about the yeah. air tanks. The amount of smoke inhalation that these people are dealing with. We have reports of, of some of these men just laying in the water. Yeah, to escape the heat. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty, pretty devastating uh, situation. But they make use of what they have. Mm-hmm. I read that there was 20 plus buildings burning at any one time, which is just. How do you even, even today, right? Like, like that's, that's shocking. That, mm-hmm. that, that number. Oof. So when it's all said and done, the great fire of 1914 will destroy roughly a third of Salem. 253 acres were burned. 1,376 buildings were lost, and these included factories, homes, schools, churches, businesses, pretty much anything you could imagine. Damages estimated to be approximately 15 million or close to 400 million in today's money, so a significant blow to the city. And thankfully, I say thankfully because you know, it could have been a lot worse, but only three people lost their lives in this uh, fire. Another 60 or so were injured. That in, does include some some of the uh, firefighters as well, right? Yeah. It looked like a majority of the injured were uh, first responders, of course, right in the midst of those flames. Once again. Credit to good people. Uh-huh. But yes, three people died. A Samuel M. Withy and Joseph J. Pickering, both of them unfortunately perished inside their homes. And a James Hossman, his body was found on Salem Street. So whether that was um, smoke smoke or, or flames, a couple other people were reported to have suffered um, just from the strain of escaping, of trying to get their stuff out, just like the the, the toll that this raging fire took on their well being. I mean, yeah. It- so in in the book uh, from from Arthur B. Jones, they list several accounts of, of people trying uh, to to reclaim in some way, shape, or form some of their stuff, uh, either in the beginning when their houses were totally on fire or whatever else. And um, like reading it, some of it's like, and, and, and we'll go through this in just a second, but it's like I'm reading trauma as I see it. And, and you're like, maybe the best example, guy runs back into his house. It's a blaze. He comes out. With nothing but a watermelon. Poor guy. Like, out, out of well, what do you do? You say you run in. You you can't. You, you what what headspace do you have to be in to leave every every picture, every valuable, every piece of clothing, every every inherit, and, and you leave with a watermelon? I I can't imagine the the strain he must have been under. Uh, to act in that fashion. Maybe he couldn't even, he just couldn't see. He just couldn't see. He couldn't, he couldn't, right? he didn't he know. Like couldn't comprehend what was going on inside that house. He just grabbed for something and ran. And ran. We have a report of a woman uh, leaving with nothing but a broom and a duster. 
uh, one woman was found, uh, all she'd managed to take was a glass of water. Um, there, there's an interesting, <laughs> interesting, funny story uh, uh-huh. with, with the hat boxes. Oh, yeah. Please tell us about the hat boxes. <laughs> so I guess uh, a gentleman and his wife had escaped and she'd grabbed two hat boxes. And one of them had some of his better clothes in them. And one of them had two kittens. And he opted to save his clothes and chucked the kittens uh, off a boat. Uh, the, the, and uh, once he's in a safe space, he opens up the hat box to realize that he'd saved the kittens. Hell nonetheless. Yes. So, um, sorry, sir, you'll you'll need a new suit. But hopefully, those those cats kept you company. Um, we, we have. I'm all glad. S- he, I'm glad he saved the cats. Right? You're like, come on. Um, but yeah, we, we have these these reports. Uh, I, I find one of a woman who, who ran back into her house and left with a, a pillow and an oil can. I I don't know what, what I would save if, if I had just minutes in, in my house. I have a lot of treasures. Um, but I, I can't imagine it would be a broom and a dustpan or a pillow and an oil can or a glass of water. Or a watermelon. Or watermelon, and and I can only attempt to understand how how terrifying that must have been to have that be your reaction. So remember when I said that I had an encounter on tour with someone that was related to the fire? Yeah. All right. Well, here's where it okay. comes in. Hit me. So I actually had a gentleman on tour whose father was living in Salem when the fire happened. So his father young. Yeah. Yeah. Very young child. Um, I can't remember if he said 1909 or 1911 was when his father was born. Okay. But he was living here. He was here either three or five at the time, but he shared with me the family has no old photos. Like there's a distinct cut. From that fire. Because it was all lost. Because it was all lost. And it's like a well-known, he doesn't live here in Salem anymore. He was coming to the city to visit. But yeah, his his family will end up leaving Salem, much like many others will, after the blaze. And his family has no no family photos. Well, that's not, I mean, that that, that makes sense. And they lost everything. There's um. And then to add on top of it, after he tells me the story, I ended up, after the tour, heading over to Bitbar. I had been informed that some of my old Salem Beer Works regulars had shown up and made an appearance. If you've been to Salem, like back in the day, the Bitbar that is today was once Salem Beer Works. I used to work there. So so the old Bitbar was where the jail was. The new Bitbar would have been destroyed in the fire. Indeed. So I show up. I have a beer with my old regulars, and one of them is a Salem native, born and raised, and very interested in just local history. And I told him about my encounter with my tour participant, and that he had familial connections to people who had survived the fire. And he says, oh, my great aunt was in that too. I was like, oh my God. Please tell me. Yeah. Tell me more. So it's it's like living history. She she went back after the fact and recovered a single teacup. A single teacup. 
and it was burnt. It was charred, but that's that she grabbed it. She had, that's all she had left a single teacup. And it's hard to sort of really understand what that must've been like and, and, and how that narrative plays out. But there's all these horrific, and you literally met someone who, who knows someone in that. And there was a, an incident in the book here um, that stuck out to me as maybe one of the worst or one of the best examples of, of really how, how tragic this situation was. And I'm going to try and read it here. Uh, and excuse me if, if my voice is shaking. It's, uh, it's sad. So you've been warned. Alone in the world with a tin bathtub, two chairs, a lamp, and a little table are John Long, age 65, and his wife, age 60. They sat quite alone on Salem Common that morning, waiting for daybreak. They had no money. The couple lived simply, and the husband said, Well, I'll have to begin all over again. It's hard when you're 65. Uh, the two lived at 46 Peabody Street, a street which, in the morning, showed not a single wall standing meaning every building had been burned to the ground. When the fire was at its height, Long was assisting others to fight the fire in Lafayette Street. So just to tack onto that, he's 65 and going to fight the fire in his neighborhood. He heard somebody say, Peabody Street is going. He ran back to his house, found it in flames. He got upstairs somehow and found his wife sitting helpless in the kitchen. He carried her out in his arms through a doorway that was already ablaze and a door that was already burnt. Two young men had brought out the tin tub, the two chairs, and the lamp and the little table from the house. And with their own hands, the elderly couple took their belongings out to the common and sat down. And at nine o'clock that night, they were given the first food they'd had since the night before served by the militia from an armory nearby. We talk about these big historical events, and I think oftentimes the personal experience of people, each individual person gets lost um, because it's so easy to just talk numbers and... 65, I have no money. I have to start over sitting on the Salem Common a chair and a bathtub. Each of those roughly 20,000 people probably had a similar, exact similar yep. story. So you mentioned the Salem Common and them bringing their belongings to that location and the mm -hmm. armory as well. So maybe we should talk a little bit about how the city dealt with the aftermath. So we have uh, spring up that, I mean, I guess that very night, the, the night of the 25th, because while the fire might be raging, that there's people whose home, they don't, where do they go? Uh, so we have what are sort of called tent cities uh, that are raised. One at Forest River Park, the Willows right next to them, uh, the Salem Common and Bertram Field. It's which, by the high school? Right. Yeah. So this is now where people are living. They're given food, clothing, supplies, but it, they don't have much. That's, that's all they got. So thankfully, the, the militia comes in, 
so the, the National Guard, as it were, uh, to help feed, clothe, supply uh, these people. So they're running these tent cities, making sure everyone is is fed, making sure, helping families find each other. Uh, there's actually a, a small child area uh, where orphan children are or where uh, parents can come and look for their children. And I guess we actually also have three children who are born in these tent cities uh, because the resources for uh, the home or the hospital just didn't exist. If you're walking through modern day Salem and you're on Essex Street, you will see right across from the Peabody Essex Museum a park called Armory Park. And you'll see the National Parks Visitor Center uh, inside that building that sits just adjacent to it. So that used to be the Salem Armory. And when the militia is called in, they'll come in and establish a bit of a base camp there for relief efforts. So another modern tie-in if you're walking through the city. And just uh, within a few days, these refugees are are living in these places. Um, four days later, there's 400 tents and 1,500 people at Forest River Park. And these numbers grow and fluctuate. The militia uh, bring them food and medical care. But at the end of it all, they're still homeless and jobless. Might I say one interesting thing uh, to note is the amount of tourists and I, I hate to even call them that word, but I guess that's what they were. They came to visit. Oh, people just came to look. Yeah, that came to visit like the city after the fact. Millions? A million. A million. A, estimated to be a million people came to the city. So, like, I like to crack this joke, especially it's, I I made it during the pandemic, really, um, when we, I know that sounds horrible, but <laughs> when Salem, in the middle of 2020, when the pandemic is raging, Salem still had visitors. Oh, it was packed. And sometimes even after, like post 2020, I'll get customers, participants asking, you know, what was it like here during the pandemic? Like what happened? Lines out the door, tens of millions of people. The same. Oh. Okay. Not tens of millions, but okay. <laughs> tens of thousands tens of or thousands. millions. But, but no, like you're right. There was, there was a ton of people still here. And so I often say, seeing how many people came during the pandemic, a meteor could hit the world and, and people are still going to come to Salem, Massachusetts. Look up. And when you look at these pictures from the Great Salem Fire, it looks like a meteor hit the city. Yeah. It was so I've I've seen a, a lot of the first time I saw one of these pictures, it was like just leveled foundations and I saw these what I initially thought were trees in the pictures, but they were chimneys. Chimneys. So just Dotting the landscape, nothing but burnt out foundations and chimneys standing, which was surreal. It looks post-apocalyptic. I think that was one of the first times that like I understood the Salem fire. Um, Devastation. Yeah. It, uh, you, you mentioned before that it swept through the, what we call today, the point area today. That is, um, where a lot of uh, minority or low-income uh, residents of the city live, uh, which today is typically uh, black, Latinx. And interestingly enough, many of these buildings were rebuilt after the Salem, or, you know, built, maybe not rebuilt, after the, the, the Salem fire. But you also mentioned that prior to the fire, 
it was the same. It was that immigrant community, which at that point was French Canadians right. and uh, uh, Irish as well. So interestingly enough, now that those buildings are over 100 years old, we have historical markers in the city on historic homes. And in the Point neighborhood, the names and listings of those buildings will be in English, as they typically are, in Spanish, because the people who live there today and in French, because the people who lived there prior to the fire. That's so cool. We'll have to go. We'll take a trip down. Take a little walk down. Yeah, and go find some of those plaques and share them with our listeners. Which I, and don't get me wrong, I love all the historic homes and all the plaques. Um, but when you see one, it's like, oh, so-and-so merchant lived here, 1890. Cool. But when I see those, I'm like, it. It's history and modern interpretation. Yeah. And in a spread of three languages, we get to see what's been going on in this neighborhood. Roughly 43% of those people made homeless will be from that Franco, um, yeah. French Canadian, Frank, French American neighborhood sector of people in the city. So that's, that's nearly half. In fact, the French Canadian population in Salem goes from. 15,000 to about 5,000 post fire. They got to go somewhere. They need work. They need, they, that's what they came to this country to find is, is a good job and a good life. And unfortunately, Salem burns. So thankfully, Salem will learn from this experience mm-hmm. and they will start. I mean, they have to, right? They have to, <laughs> they have to rebuild. So yeah. they will start incorporating, incorporating more modern advancements into their construction. So new building codes are implemented. Streets are widened, although not all of them. And hundreds of shade trees are planted in hopes that something like this will not happen again. And uh, so far, so good. I probably shouldn't say that. I don't know why you just said that. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I, you can just clip that right out. I'm going to leave it in. No, fuck off. <laughs> Can't leave that in. That's what I should do every time I screw up. I should just swear under my breath. So you have to cut it out. I could just bleep you. I could just bleep. Um. So I have to say, all in all, um, I knew a bit about the Salem fire, mm-hmm. but this really forced me to dig further into the research. And I think most folks just think about Giles Corey when they hear the Salem fire. Like that is really <sighs> the only in people tend to have because it's tied to the trials, right? I mean, local legend. Yes. A hundred percent local legend. Well, it's a ghost. Like who, what? (laughs) So, uh, within the scope of Giles Corey's narrative, just to clarify, supposedly, supposedly at some point during his pressing, he curses Salem to burn. (laughs) (laughs) His child. Oh no. The ghost of Giles Corey. And uh, supposedly, the night before the great fire of Salem, his spirit, specter, his full body apparition was seen, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to actually get into that too much. Are um, we going to save it? Save yeah. it for our ghost story episode? We got, we got ghost stories coming up. Spoiler alert. So why don't we save the story of Giles Corey? What? just rhymed yeah why don't we save the story of giles Corey till we talk about salem and its haunted history fair okay 
But that's but no, you're right. That's where yeah. many people uh, pull that narrative from. They, they've heard that he cursed the city and and it did and then burn. the great fire starts. Yeah, it is slightly disappointing to learn that it it started at a tannery and not like you know just mysteriously at the foothill of Gallows Hill. But yeah, history, history. Now, ghosts and legends aside. There is something tangible that people can go and see if they want to connect in the modern day to this catastrophe, which sounds weird, but we all know that history, like you want to be in the spot that it happened, right? You want to, you want to touch the things that came from that moment in time. You want to be grounded, right? So if you are local to the city and you don't already know, or if you are coming to Salem, you can actually pop over the North River Bridge. You hang a right and you will run into Furlong Park. And if the tide is down... Go explore. So it's positioned right up alongside the old North River. Mm-hmm. And when the tide goes out, it's you can walk a significant ways into that waterway. And that is where they dumped a lot of the great fire debris. Mm -hmm. And the, the factories as well, but you can go out there, find teacups, plates, metal bits, all. I found heels of shoes. There's a leather tannery. You can go out there, get bits of shoes. Cool. It's so cool. Labels. I, I, I know people. Not myself. I totally forgot about this. I know people who've gone out there with like metal detectors and found like jewelry, like gold and stuff. <gasps> That's so cool. Yeah. I uh, forgot about that. Honestly, all of it felt like treasure to yeah. me. Like I'm pulling yeah. out shards of glass and like porcelain and plates, but they were so cool. Yeah. So I think we will, we'll, we'll put together a little exploring video, exploring video where we talk about the treasures we pulled out of the because we both went and did it, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, the treasures that we pulled out of the old North River. But maybe we'll save that for Patreon. <gasps> I'm sorry, oh, did I oh, just do that? Shh, spoilers. Oh God, so Sarah, spoilers. Sorry. Don't don't let the cats out of the bag. We have no cats. To be determined. To be determined. It's okay. We'll see. You heard us. You heard us right. But that just about wraps it up for the Great Fire of Salem, 1914. If you're still interested in learning about the fire, a couple other resources to check out. Once again, The Salem Fire by Arthur B. Jones, written and published in 1914 by an actual Salem firefighter. Um, An incredible account. You can head on over to the Peabody Essex Museum's website. They have a huge collection in the Phillips Library of photographs taken post-fire. So you can actually see like the chimneys that Jeffrey was referring to. Absolute desolation. And if you don't want to comb through the digital archives, there's a great piece written by Donna Seeger on the Streets of Salem blog, which includes several photographs of the aftermath. In particular, I appreciate the ones that have not just the fire, like she has fire blazing with people watching. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you get some photographs of the damage, but then there's also actual, right? Like it's, it burned for 13 hours. Like there are photos of people just watching the city burn. It's crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) It is really crazy. 
There's just a couple couple basic resources if you're still interested. And those will be available? In the show notes, as always. But for now, that's all we got. I think that's pretty much it. So that means, what do we got next week? We finally have another interview. <gasps> Y'all have been waiting so patiently. Who is it? Oh, it's going to be a good one. Is we it don't, a secret? It's always a secret. What is do it you spooky? mean? It's so spooky. So this spooky. So spooky. I love secrets. Wait, no. I love spooky. I love spooky secrets. Yes. Well, this has, this is, this is both. This so. is, then I love it even more. <laughs> so if hopefully you're all looking forward to that. Yeah. If you don't already follow us on social media, we usually do a interview identity reveal <gasps> a couple days <gasps> prior. So uh, you can definitely see us working some magic movie cinema magic dun, dun, dun. in our 15 second reels. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but until then, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, download those episodes, leave some reviews and coerce all your friends into listening just like you are, because that's how things work. Otherwise, Follow us on the socials. We are at Salem the Podcast. And if you have any questions, you can email us at hello at Salem the Podcast. And of course, when you come visit us in Salem, make sure to book a tour with Sarah and myself. The links to those companies are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you later. So if you come to town and you're looking to do a little bit of treasure hunting. I don't, I don't know if I want to tell them. At all? What do you mean? Why? Because of how many people went out to the. Yeah. I think there's going to be a distinct difference to how many people put on rubber shoes and go out into the old North River. Fine. And they have to get the timing right, too. Yeah. They're going to show up and be like, wait a minute. I could just dig here. Tides up, you bastard. Bastard. You fucking bastard. Digging in the water.